Hello and welcome everybody. It's going to be a fascinating interview this evening because Joe is on the exact same page as many of us when it comes to campaigning for the underdogs in the justice system. He's covered some huge cases, represented the people and come through fighting. His own backstory includes the heartbreaking story of how his brother was savaged by the parasites in the legal system and we're going to get into that as well so you can see why he's on the mission one of the biggest names he's worked on the team for is andrew tate we're going to be talking about that as well and some of the other big cases but first off huge thank you for coming on joe and what was it that set you on this mission well thank you for having me on sean i really appreciate it and i appreciate and admire all the work that you do um, so going back to about 2005, uh, what set me on the mission was the wrongful conviction of my, of, of my own brother. Uh, he was essentially accused of the crime that he absolutely did not commit. Um, I come from a traditional sort of Catholic family. I'm Puerto Rican and Irish. It's a very New York, Brooklyn mix. And, um, you know, uh, my mom and dad were people of, uh, middle class, lower middle class means, but wanted to give back. So we were foster parents and we had a bunch of foster kids come through our house, all different backgrounds, all different faiths, all different, everything, all, all boys. And uh, we adopted Anthony and uh, he was born addicted to heroin, alcohol, a bunch of other things, real tough uh, upbringing. Right before we got him, he comes from a family of 12, uh, eight brothers and, and uh, five sisters, four sisters. And, his best friend and his and his little brother at the time, they were about a year apart. Um, they were supposed to get adopted together. And for whatever reason, the family took his brother and they booted him into the street and back into the agency. So we got him two weeks after that happened and just a real rough life. We took him in. We loved him as, as, as our own. We gave him our name. He's my brother. But he's also um, paranoid schizophrenic. He had a bunch of um, other mental diagnoses along the way. And uh, when he was accused of a crime that he did not commit, um, he was threatened with 125 years of incarceration with a defense attorney who was basically in cahoots with the judge and the prosecutor. Uh, they did not give him justice. They did not care about the fact that he had some type of uh, a serious mental defect. And my brother, thinking that he was doing the smart thing outside of the presence of meaningful counsel, signed a 15-year a plea deal, and he, and he did 10 years on that deal. Uh, when that happened, uh, I was devastated. But when I saw my mom and dad, it, it the devastation was just like 10x. These are good people who love God, who love country, who just love humanity, shirt off your back type of people. And to watch them go through this, I just had to do something. And to be quite honest with you, um, I probably quit <laughs> every job I had before then. I was big into the nightlife scene in New York City and Miami in the late 90s, early 2000s. Before, uh, you know, I had a, a religious experience of my own, but that was my life. I was in the mixed martial arts scene for a while as well. But I really had no purpose. I really had nothing, you know, that was my calling. Um, and when that happened, I, I discovered what my purpose was very quickly. And I told my mom and dad and my brother, I said, hey, look, uh, I can go become I mean, street guy from Brooklyn here. I can go become a lawyer. 
probably in half the time of his sentence. It takes about seven, eight years in the States to become an attorney and get admitted. And uh, I'll see if I can get him out. It took me 10 years to become an attorney. You know, I didn't factor in bar exams and admissions and applications and money. And by the time I had um, gotten to a place where I was admitted to the bar and I could meaningfully help my brother, he got out like the same month I got admitted. (laughs) And uh, while I wasn't able to help him, I committed myself to fighting for people whom the justice system um, unfairly targeted for nefarious purposes, unjust purposes, political purposes, racial purposes, whatever it is, you name it. Whoever's the underdog, whoever the system at large is going after, I'm going to defend. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. So was it a state case with your brother or a federal case? And was he exonerated? State case was not exonerated. Um, So he was not exonerated because we did not pursue the exoneration, even though I would very much like to. The reason why we did not pursue it is because when my brother was in jail, uh, because he had a uh, has a, a mental uh, several mental issues, um, the jail didn't properly know how to care for him. So their solution was at one point to put him in the box, solitary confinement for almost five years straight. And what was ever left of my brother broke. He came out. He wasn't the same man. He was not able to adapt back into life, back in the world. My brother's in a home now. So I wasn't. Um, I wasn't able to help him, and uh, but I keep that fire. I keep that fire in my belly um, every day for you know for the people who are, who I fight for now. Um, it's very unfair um, what happened to my brother, but I'm also very much aware that uh, there's a lot of unfairness out there in the world that happens to people every day. So I do my best to contribute and to fight in some small yet meaningful way to uh, to stick up for uh, for anybody um, who comes across my path where it makes sense to me, you know, business-wise and, 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 and legally to be able to to, to help them. Because um, I'm an all-or-nothing guy. When I represent somebody, I am in it to the end. Win, lose, or draw, ride, or die, I'm there until the wheels come off. Yeah, so what happened to your brother? That is state-sanctioned torture as far as I'm concerned. And the sad thing is the perpetrators are never held accountable, are they? They have immunity, don't they? Qualified immunity is a big problem. Yes. You know, it's basically like we're agents of the state as long as we are acting with some reasonable degree of good faith. We are basically untouchable. Um, If he were to be exonerated, we would sue and we would win and he'd probably clean up, get a lot of money. That's how they make people whole again. But in terms of giving somebody back that life, that part of their spirit, that part of their brain, the years, you can't put a price on that. And uh, because of the qualified immunity, uh, you know, especially in the States, uh, they, they do this uh, rampantly. So you were working diligently for 10 years then studying. Did you have to do, uh, you know, jobs to sustain yourself through this period? Yes. Yeah, I worked my butt off um, every time I could. Uh, and then when I got into law school, um, you have to, it's like indentured servitude. You have to work. You have to work for free, uh, essentially, to, to gain the irrelevant experience that you need and then you moonlight on the side and do whatever you can do to survive in order to get through. But I got through and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the law. I learned a lot about people. Um, and, uh, you know, law school, um, I hated every second of it because I was around this, mm-hmm. you know, 
this class of people who didn't like me and I didn't like them. <laughs> and uh, we came from different worlds, was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. But I clawed to the top, uh, I clawed to the top of the school, I clawed to the top of the practice. And uh, I'm here despite every single last one of them. So did those people have an eye on becoming prosecutors then? Most of those people I went to school with had an eye on becoming uh, corporate attorneys. Um, big money. Big money attorneys, corporate attorneys. But uh, there was uh, a Cardozo Law in, in, in New York City is a, uh, has this, a, pro, a, a program. It's a criminal defense clinic. Uh, it's ran by a, by a professor named Jonathan Oberman. He's, he's phenomenal. He was my mentor in school. Doesn't really talk to me anymore because of my politics, but you know, let's neither here nor there. Um, but um, they have a, they had the the defense program there, and they also have the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project is where, if you hear, you know, you know, if a guy's in jail for 20, 30 years and gets out through DNA, um, you can go, uh, you, you you can help those people. So I worked with both of them. I was at the Innocence Project for a year, and then I was at Oberman's clinic for a year, the defense clinic, and then I went straight out. So I kind of stayed with that group of people. But my interactions with the rest of them, you know, um, in, in everyday life and in the rest of my classes, uh, you know, none of those people cared about um, about you or me, that's for sure, or about any of the people I represent. Yeah, I've interviewed a few people who've been helped by the Innocence Project, and they do fantastic work. So let's get this straight then. So you're studying for 10 years. Then you have to go and work for free as an apprenticeship in a law firm. Is that what happens? Yeah. Um, so I worked um, as an apprentice for uh, the, the Legal Aid Society uh, and a few other organizations, but basically public service, public defender organizations where you go in and you get relevant, uh, relevant experience as an investigator, as a junior attorney, as an apprentice, so to speak. Um, and then you make your connections there. You move and shake your network. People see that you're good, and then they make you an offer after school. So straight out of school, I went into the Legal Aid Society in, in, in New York City in Manhattan. I was a public defender for the first five years of my career, um, and then I switched. Uh, you know, I started my own firm when when uh, when I really really felt that the public defender organization that I was working for had betrayed its mission statement and would only really meaningfully advocate for people no matter who they were so long as they were on one side of the political aisle i saw that as uh as reprehensible and i said well you know uh, if you're gonna not if you won't represent these people i will and i'll go out there and i'll do a hell of a job doing it and that's how i began my law firm do you remember your first case as a public defender you know what? I'd like to say, I'd like to sit here and tell you that I do, but I was handed uh, on day one about 30 cases at one time. Uh, so I had 100 cases or so with the, the, by the end of my first month. Uh, I remember my first trial. I remember my last trial uh, as a public defendant for sure. I remember all my trials. Um, I remember many of my clients. Some of them are still friends with me today. Um, some of them still say, hey, I remember when you helped me and, and look at my life now and, you know, you <laughs> believed in me back then, so on and so forth. But, uh, I mean, thousands of cases over, over the course of that time. I mean, caseloads are off the charts when you're a public defender, especially in New York City. So what was the first case you took to trial? It was a drinking and driving case. Uh, it was a, it was a guy who was accused of, 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 uh, of being behind the wheel. 
after having consumed too much alcohol. Um, I he actually didn't legally consume anything past the limit. The guy had had one beer, and the NYPD had set had failed to properly set up an accident scene. And they, uh, uh, my guy crashed into the sort of a part of the scene where a squad car was parked, but they did, they did not set it up the right way. And, and any person in a rainstorm would have crashed at that time. So what I did was I whipped out their, their rule book and I cross-examined them on their procedure and they didn't follow their procedure. And, and the jury, it was a five-day draw trial and the jury acquitted him uh, in, in 15 minutes. The jury just saw that. They said, hey, listen, the guy had one beer. He got up there and he told the truth. You guys didn't secure the scene of the crime. I know exactly where that place and location is. It's tricky on a good day. It's no surprise that this happened. And we're not going to, you know, make this guy go down because you messed things up. What is your most memorable trial case from the public defender years? Uh, probably my last trial, which was a... Uh, um, a drug case where uh, a gentleman had uh, been living in, in, a, in a homeless shelter and he had 200 uh, glass, 20 glass scenes of heroin uh, strapped to his leg, uh, like taped to his leg. And um, there was a confusion with my co-counsel who does not come from the street like I do. And I, I knew the difference between bundles and stacks, and she thought it was 200, it was really 20, and the prosecutor as well. And we had this very interesting conversation where I was like, look, this guy has about 30 or 40 misdemeanor convictions, 10 felonies. The guy's got a lifelong problems, but we can beat the felonies in this case because what he has here on him is, is his life savings of drugs strapped to his legs because he's a user and he has a dollar, $1 bill one credit card that doesn't belong to him and a razor blade. And, you know, she wanted to move to suppress those items in court. And I said, we can't suppress those items. Those items are critical for the judge and the jury to see them because they're going to understand that this is a personal use case that he's not selling. So we went back and forth, we went back and forth and um, she wound up going with my, my theory and we wound up winning and getting uh, a, 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 uh, beating the top charges which was you know trafficking of some of some kind which he would have gotten 10 years in jail for and he had already had time served on the misdemeanors he had already done like three months and the guy walked free um and because the guy was a drug addict he's got money from public assistance he strapped the money to his leg he goes and uses it it's an unfortunate situation but the guy's not a heroin dealer so i mean and he got caught jumping the turnstile most heroin dealers don't jump the turnstile. They have a little sense about them. So, uh, you know, I was able to use some street smarts and some relationship with the judge. And I was able to say to an attorney that was senior to me, hey, maybe you should do this my way. And I'm glad that she listened to me. And I realized um, at that point in time, too, that I had reached my ceiling. Like, you know, I was working with some of the best attorneys. And, you know, I, I was a little bit, I was maybe arguably better than them. And I wanted to go out into the world and test my mettle. And, uh, you know, I've been getting good results ever since. So as a public defender, do you have to take all the cases that they assign to you? Or if something goes against what you believe, for example, adults who are attracted to kids, could you refuse to take that kind of a case? So um, the answer is 
you are supposed to take every case that they give you. But if you have a case that is triggering to you or morally objectionable to you or factually too so difficult for you where you cannot objectively and in good conscience uh, represent that person the way that they, the Constitution mandates, then you should step off of the case. And I, in fact, did have a case where I needed to step off of because it had nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It had to do with the fact, um, it, actually, it actually involved a, a child and um, I, I just, I, I couldn't do it. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to murder the guy. And, and, and I told my superior, I said, I, I, I want to murder this guy. I can't, I can't represent him. And, um, you know, they, uh, they, they transferred the case to someone else. Completely understandable. And I commend you for that. So how easy or difficult was it to transition from being a public defender to having your own practice? It was, it was pretty easy, you know, um, Growing up uh, in, in New York City, in and around the area here, I have a lot of friends. I mean, the world I came from, the world I come from, uh, basically everybody who I grew up with, with the exception of a very small handful of people, they're all better in jail, right? So um, the guys who were gangsters and who I knew who grew up and did different things, they were all like, oh, when are you going to go federal? When are you going to go private? We got cases for you. We got money for you, you know, and it's, it's sure as shit. Two weeks out, I had my first federal case and, and they just started coming. Um, and, you know, it was like, oh, I always knew you were going to make it. And those guys helped propel me and they gave me uh, what I needed in my first couple of years there uh, to, to, to take off. And I, and I got good results for them, too. And, uh, you know, being a lawyer, well, most of what they teach you in law school is irrelevant. It's like, you know, they teach you how to how to think like a lawyer. To look at both sides of an issue. Okay, fine. Um, other than that, you need to know the law. And then past that, it's people skill. So most of the skills that I learned growing up in my home, how to problem solve, how to issue spot, how to deal with people from different cultures and different backgrounds, how to talk to people, and how to go into a room. You know, my father said, this is how you go into a room to conduct yourself as a man. My mother said, this is how you conduct yourself as a man. And I took those skills into life and I bring them into my practice. And it turns out people, people like them. And when you're raised the right way and, and, and you have a personality. So, you know, um, it just transitioned well for me. So what was the case for your first trial in private practice? Oh, man. So the case for my first trial in private practice was an assault case. Um, it was a... Uh, a Two guy, a man and a woman were having an argument, and uh, the man wind up wound, wound up taking the woman's cell phone and throwing it, and it went through, uh, like hit a storefront window. Um, so it was fairly complex because I had to have the girlfriend on the stand to tell the jury that she had agitated her boyfriend to the point where he threw the phone. And then I had to get him to on the stand to talk about how when he threw the phone, he had no intent to hurt anybody. He was just, just blown off steam. And it was more negligence than it was criminal. Got him off, um, got him off too. Um, so uh, that, well, we beat the top charges in that case. He did, he did get a menacing and, 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 a, and a, I believe a vandalism charge, but they were tickets. So, um, you know, it's not what it could have been, but that was my first uh, private practice. And uh, I still know them too. They're pretty funny.
So when you're starting out in private then, what was your most challenging early case? Most challenging early case is some, it's like actually a case I'm still dealing with. Um, well, January 6th cases aside, because that's a whole body of litigation that it, it's like the law doesn't apply there. But so um, I, ha I have a, a guy that um, uh, was dealing, uh, dealing cocaine and uh, he was also using it. And um, they found uh, the cops came and they they found uh, cocaine in his house pursuant to a search warrant. They had a search warrant to search the house and the first floor of the house and the outside. But after they found it, they went downstairs into the basement, opened up a secret compartment. And they pulled a brick out of there. Right. And um, the warrant did not give them permission to go down there and do it. So we challenged the warrant and uh, we didn't get the result that we should have. We should have been able to suppress that, but it didn't happen. Uh, and my and my guy got wound up having to take a, a plea because um, he was looking at <laughs> like a long time in jail. And uh, we negotiated it down to to the to the very bottom dollar amount. But just because of of uh, it bothers me to this day because we we were right on the law and we got the wrong decision. It's a case that's actually about, uh, I don't know, seven years old at this point. I mean, normally a case like that would have been wrapped up in six months, but we've been scrappy about it, trying to really get him the minimum amount of time. And we're actually uh, wrapping that up uh, here in the next few months. So do those fruit from the forbidden tree situations arise a lot? Oh, yeah, they sure do. They sure do. There's a lot of forbidden fruit out there in court that should not be there. <laughs> <laughs> but it sure is. What was your first high-profile case then? So my first high-profile case was a case that I... Well, there's a case that I came on um, after the conviction. I came on to help examine the FBI's planting of evidence in a hard drive. Um, this was for uh, uh, a guy named uh, Keith Ranieri. Um, he was uh, accused and convicted of being a uh, Nixium sex cult leader. Um, they made an HBO documentary and a Stars documentary about it. And uh, in order to get him, uh, the FBI uh, did, in fact, plant evidence against him. And instead of trying and winning on the facts, uh, they knew that they were scant on the facts and they, uh, they doctored evidence in order to get him uh, to get a conviction. And now he's got 120 years in jail. Um, I, was, I came on for that limited purpose and then and, and and jumped off. His, his case was subsequently appealed. The appeal failed. And it's unfortunate because when morality aside, um, doesn't matter what you've been accused of morality aside the government's got to beat you by the rules if the government doesn't abide by the rules why the hell should any of us right so um they did not beat him by the rules but because the system hated him so much because of the, the facts and the accusations under which he was accused it turned a blind eye to to, to government misconduct which as you know is a very slippery slope so that Three questions arise. Uh, what did they plant? How did they plant it? And how do you detect that they've planted it? 
That's a great question. So detection was, it just came from the client saying, hey, that, I never had that on my computer. Um, they planted evidence on a hard drive in his computer and then accused and said, hey, these pictures belong to him. And they were pictures of an underage girl. And he's like, there's no way, no how. This is factually impossible. There was a broken chain of custody. And we had to get the hard drive, the image of the hard drive, turn it over to experts. We had a former FBI employee, career employee, subsequently retired 20 years in the FBI, expert in the field, issue a report saying this was doctored. They didn't care, right? And that that kind of thing is the, is what we're seeing in the American justice system now. Um, it's what we're seeing in my January six cases, right? A lot of these guys who went to the Capitol. Politics aside, you can love them, you can hate them. Uh, if somebody went down to the Capitol and kicked over a sign and took a walk, and even say they say they 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 peed on a wall somewhere or smoked a cigarette. Or, or broke a window, you give them the according, the appropriate response. But you have people that are getting 20, 30, 15, 18, 19 years for crimes that people on the other side of the political aisle are committing all over the place in America, and they're being sent home the same day. And it's, um, it's the dismantling of the American justice system, which I believe to be the greatest justice system in the world up until recently, for political purposes, it's the politicization, you know, it's politics in the justice system. It's the arresting of your political opponents and their supporters for uh, for for political reasons to to quench and quench dissidents in the public square um, in order to, you know, align the public with one line of thinking. You think and you walk and you talk and you dress the way we want you to. Otherwise, we're going to lock you up and we're going to throw away the key and that'll be the end of it. Yeah, I've written books about the Bush Clinton crime families. I think oh, one of them's on my shoulder. Uh, <laughs> that side is it. And um, weaponization, the weaponization of the justice system and the intelligence agencies as well. So, do you think that Trump then went against that trend? Oh, without a doubt. There's no question about it. Most people who who run for political office, um, I'm most people. Lots of people who run for political office are, are, are poor. And they run, they, 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 they want to come up, they want power, they want influence, and they get sucked into those sort of like what we call the swamp. Other people come from these sort of, you know, blue blood families, these very waspy families and, you know, in America, and they've sort of sat in positions of power for a long time. And it's just a rolling over of power to, you know, from generation to generation. And there are a group of people who are poor, who want to join that group, and they all get in together and they do that, right? Trump independently wealthy from new york does not give a shit doesn't need anything from anyone he just said you know what i love my country um i'm gonna say a bunch of things that you don't agree with but guess what this is america i get to do that and if you don't like me don't vote for me and if you do like what i'm saying then vote for me and let's change things and um that's what he ran on that's why people identified with him that's why people love him and adore him and that's why people hate him but um, he he didn't need anything from them because he already had everything. And when you can't buy someone off in politics, uh, they're a real problem for you. And uh, yeah, he's definitely an outsider. He continues to be one. Do you think the social media platforms are part of the problem? Yes, of course. I, I mean, you know, the the, the public-private partnership between government. In, in, in the social media platforms 
um, and big tech in general is, 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 is scary. It's dystopian. It shouldn't be. They use these platforms to circumvent the Constitution and the protections of the First Amendment and to uh, just out, outright election interference, the suppression of one side um, and the elevation of another side, so on and so forth. I mean, it was gross. It was disgusting what they did in 2020. And, you know, I hope that, you know, that where X and Twitter is going, that it appears that Elon's going to be different and, 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 and but, you know, we'll see as, as time goes on. The new Twitter is certainly better than the old Twitter. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm troubled um, by it all because it circumvents the protections in the free marketplace of ideas that any free thinking and red-blooded American citizen or citizen of your country as well can stand up and say something and say, I object to this. I think this is great. I think this sucks. I think you're great. I think you suck. That's your right as a free person to say these things and not be punished for it. And they're punishing people, you know, by debanking, defunding, cancellation, the whole, the whole nine yards. And, um, you know, what the hell did anybody fight and ever go to war for if this was going to be the end result? It's ridiculous. Yeah, he brought Elon brought Tate back, didn't he? And Trump back. We're going to get yeah. to Tate um, as one of your big cases. But before that, which other high profile cases have you done? Uh, so the the most recent one, I have I have a bunch. But uh, so in terms of January sixth, uh, I, I represented Richard Barnett. Um, he was the guy who had his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk on January sixth. So it was like that big picture all over the place. And um, he was facing about, he was facing 47 years, something like that. He's 62 now. Um, we uh, we had trial. Trial lasted two and a half weeks in D.C. Um, it was a hell of a fight. And uh, we put up a good, good fight. We, um, D.C. is comprised, D.C. is 96.9% Joe Biden voters, right? And, um D.C. is comprised of two groups of people. I'm just going to stereotype the whole place very quickly, right? You have one group of people who are homegrown D.C. folks, and those are mainly African-Americans. You have another group of people who have, they're, they're sort of transplants from all over the country, and they're white, affluent, like radical lefties that are just like way out in left field, just all the way out there, like their politics is their religion, and, you know, if you're not subscribing to the religion, it's, you know, turn or burn. You're either with us or off, off, off to the gulag you go. So we had to make a, a decision in, in jury selection. Who do we go with here? Do we try to disqualify one side or the other side? Because they, they all like Biden. But who's going to be more reasonable? Um, we picked a, a heavy minor, a minority jury. Most of our jurors were, were African-American. And I... We, we did that for the specific purpose of saying this group of people understands what it's like to be uh, have a, a unfair experience with the justice system, to be victims of police brutality. Um, three, three out of every five black men in America go to jail at some point, guilt or innocence aside, so on and so forth. We had to make a judgment call and say this community is going to be more understanding, we hope, of um why somebody could go to a protest and things go crazy as opposed to this other group who politics is religion for. We had hoped that that was going to make a difference. Um, the trial was two and a half weeks. They deliberated for two hours and they convicted him on all charges. Um, we, he, in other words, he had no 
chance in hell. He, you know, even during my summation, some of the jurors were crying. They understood where we were coming from, but they had made their decision before we ever even walked in the room because of who he was, because of the picture, because of the, he was tried in the media first. Fortunately, um, or, or, or unfortunately, depending on how you view it, I still think it's unfair. He got four years and change. He's been sentenced to, he recently went in. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not 50 years, right? What he, what he was facing. So um, we had hoped to, to have been able to do better. Um, we had hoped that the, the jury and the people would have been more reasonable but uh, they simply weren't, and uh, and that's unfortunate. And the next big January sixth case I have is the case of Ryan Nichols, and that's uh, a decorated U.S. United States Marine Corps veteran living with PTSD. He was locked in the Gulag for two and a half years, driven a suicide watch, in solitary confinement for eleven months. Um, he's the best of what America has to offer. He runs his own business. He has two kids. He's been married for ten years. He specializes in search and rescue. He has rescued thousands of people from natural disasters, the best of the best of the best. And they want like they want like 15 years on a plea deal. And if we blow trial, he's facing like like I don't know, a lot, 50 something years if we blow trial uh, because he went there and made a few speeches. He went into the Capitol. He did something stupid, but he saw an abject level of violence. He saw like women getting beaten up. A woman got Roseanne boiling. She got stomped to death. She got killed. He had recently heard that Ashley Babbitt was shot. He didn't know what the hell was going on. Are we at war? Are we at peace? Is, is a revolution happening? A lot of things running through his mind. We've tried to reason with the prosecution to see if they're going to, if they would be willing to make us a, an offer of some kind. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. We're going to waive a jury in that case. We're not putting it before a jury. We're going to go before the judge and have the judge be the finder of fact and law and, and hope that we can present uh, and humanize Ryan to the extent where the judge will see that January 6th is an aberration in his life. It is the exception and not the rule. And uh, if we go down, we'll go down swinging and hopefully it'll be meaningful enough that, you know, if it gets to sentencing, what he's endured already, what he's done for his country, treatment that he received in jail and the things the, the good things that he's done since that day will count for something. But, you know, that's, I would like to say the jury's out on that, but I don't trust the jury anymore. So we'll just have to get there and see what happens. That's obscene. You think we are in Stalinist Russia by the sounds of the way things are going now? We are. We are there. I, I, we're not very far. We're, not, we're, we're a step or two away. All right, before we go into Tate, then I've got to give the usual uh, disclaimer because he's so de divisive. We have many people who follow the channel who love Tate, especially the young men, and we've got many people who are upset by him. So I've had people on, you know, who have supported him, such as Ryan Dawson. I've got friends such as True Geordie who got into a big internet spat with Tate, and I'd love to see... True Geordie and Tate do an interview. I saw Tate recently say he's got no beef with True Geordie anymore. So it'll be good for those guys to make up because Podcast Wars, they get views in the beginning, but they can cause a lot of harm in the long run. And then my um, one of my close collaborators, Michael Francis, he's a huge... Thanks for watching our podcast. This is a word from our sponsor, Shopify. I feel like I'm missing out because everyone is starting a side hustle or their own business these days. And you know what they're hearing a lot? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify.
the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling books or events like us, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Shopify covers all your sales channels from a shopfront ready POS system to its all-in-one e-commerce platform. Shopify even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And thanks to 24-7 help and with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. Look, there's so many options out there to expand your business these days. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Sean to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean. That's the word from our sponsor. Thanks for watching. Link in description. Back to the podcast. Supporter of Tate. He's done a lot of videos there. So I am, viewers, I am just... The interviewer, I am. Don't shoot the interviewer when we talk about Tate. And um, I've said from day one that I believe that Andrew Tate, because he was flexing in a country where in the legal system, incomes are so low, I believe he's been liquidated because, I don't know if you know my backstory, Joe, but I did six years in Arizona and I had operations bringing ecstasy in, including through Mexico. If I had gone down to Mexico driving around in Bugattis, <laughs> I would be in a very, they would have found a charge and I'd be in a very similar situation. So you're a meal ticket, basically, if you've got that much money. When my co-defendants or any of my associates got arrested in Mexico, we knew we just go down to the, the cop shop, pay so much money and they get out. I've interviewed William Rodriguez, the son of the boss of the Cali cartel. When the Cali cartel guys got arrested in Spain, they were facing extradition to America where they were going to do life. But they paid off the Spanish judges and they engineered this bull smuggling charge so that they got sent back to Colombia where they could pay their way out. So my other theory is that if Andrew Tate's got some money that the Romanians haven't taken yet, he might want to spread the love around a bit to see if he can lubricate justice over there. But anyway, how did you get into this case in the first place? So, um, you know, in addition to doing the January 6th defendant work, uh, I've uh, helped uh, uh, a few people in Trump world uh, publicly and, and privately and um, members in the American government who were targeted by the January 6th committee and received various subpoenas. I've been on, on all the shows, Tucker Carlson, you know, here, there, all, 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 the, all the big shows. I, I, I was really the only outspoken attorney for the first year and a half 
of this stuff happening. And people were going, well, what the hell are you doing? You know, we don't use the media this way. And I, and I told them, you, you have to be crazy not to use the media this way. This is a gift. And by the way, the enemy is using it. So you have to fight back. You fight fire with fire and you do it with fire and intelligence. So um, I was able to raise my profile that way. And that comes with its positives and its negatives. Um, but one of the positives is that people take notice. And some people say, you know what? I really like the way that guy, you know, he sticks up for people in the way he talks. Other people go, I don't like the way that guy talks at all. I don't like his bald head or his accent or any of that stuff, right? But whatever. So uh, the Tates, uh, they, they saw me. Some people in their camp saw me and they say, hey, I think that this guy could uh, could do a good job on, on, on a multitude of fronts. So let's bring him in and, and let's, let's talk and let's see if there's a good fit. And uh, I mean, you know. Right off the jump, we were like long lost brothers, and and you know we have a lot in common. We have our disagreements and our in our uh, our differences, but um, they are far less than what we share in common. We share a, a ton of things in common, and I don't like the way that they've been targeted. I don't like the way that they've been treated. I don't agree with everything that they say, but I think that they have a right to say it, and that people should be incarcerated. Uh, because uh, they make you feel a certain way. Um, if Andrew Tate says something or Tristan Tate says something that you disagree with to the extent that it upsets you, you should be upset and process that information in a healthy way. And if they provoke you to the point where you want to counter what they're saying, well, well then go out there and say something. Start a podcast, tweet a tweet, write a book, send a letter, do something about it constructively. Don't take away somebody's right to live. Don't take away somebody's right to self-determine their own destiny in this world simply because you don't agree with them. That is uh, the the easy way out. Um, that is a fear-based uh, response. It gives life to all types of dystopian nightmares. And, uh, you know, um, people who, 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 by and large, have, have fear of, of an opposing viewpoint, they're feeding this Leviathan. And, uh, you know, if you think Andrew Tate is the problem, wait until you're dealing with a government that looks at you as a number and not that you're a person with any with any human rights anymore. So, um, you know, I respect and I understand why people disagree with the Tates. I do. I get it. Look, they say some divisive stuff, but we live in a divisive world, right? We don't live in a world of... 40 years ago or 20 years ago, uh, if I would have told you 20 years ago that we were having conversa conversations about normalizing changing children's genders at six years old and putting people on puberty blockers when they were seven, you would tell me I'm some kind of maniac from the future, right? That I've ascended from the pit of hell someplace. But these are the conversations that we're having today. So if a group of people and whoever their leader is gets to say that, you know, there's a legitimate place for minor attracted persons in the world. There's a legitimate place for child sex changes. There's a legitimate places for all these things. There's another group of people that say, okay, we agree. And, and, and there's another group of people that say, well, what the hell are you talking about? We disagree, right? But we're not saying that because you're saying these things, you should be put in jail. If you cross the line, Fine, we'll have that conversation, but you have a right to say those things. I would rather hear you say them in the public square than for you not to have that right. And, and, and Andrew Tate, Tristan Tate, the manosphere, the alpha male sort of world, 
they represent a correction in the free marketplace of ideas in the stock market of ideas against people who have been short selling traditional masculinity for the past 30 years against people who have been attacking men for being men for the past 25 years at some point the market is going to correct and they represent a correction in that market so things can either balance out or the market will crash and nobody will have a voice it's my hope that things balance out yeah i agree with you about freedom of speech though so when you're looking at a case in a foreign country what are the idiosyncrasies of the romanian justice system because my experience is in america so i'm familiar with plea bargains most cases go to plea bargains some people exercise their right to have a trial jury trial is it different in romania oh it's much different so you know there there are, there are several there are several teams uh you have a team in place in Romania, you have a team in place in the States, you have a team in place in the UK and at other undisclosed locations. Mm -hmm. And um, each team functions as a local council. So in Romania, um, it is the Romanian uh, legal team that, that that's running point on, on, on all these issues. We consult, we work very, very closely together. We advise each other on law, on skills, how does this affect this? How does this affect that? What's the relationship between the states and the UK and what's going on over here? But when, when you compare the, the, the UK system and the American system, very close, right? With the Romanian system, very, very different. And for instance, one of the things about the Romanian court is um, perjury is not treated uh, as uh, seriously as it is uh, in, 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 in the States or in the United Kingdom. Um, whereas um, if you lie under oath in the United States, it's it's your ass, you're going to be in trouble, right? Um, especially if you get caught, if you catch a perjury charge, it's not as, as consequential or in Romania. However, um, one of the things that happens in the American justice system all the friggin' time is that people will levy false allegations and make false reports against each other. This person did this against me. This person did that against me. We treat that with like, uh, you know, it happens all the time in a grain of salt. If you lie in a sworn statement in Romania, if you falsely accuse somebody, it's actually more consequential in Romania than perjury is over here. So it's like this weird, this weird shift due process the ability to hold somebody for in, in jail without being charged for for six eight months over there very different than, than, than what we know but um you know you learn you learn as you go you learn the politics you you learn the people um and and, and you, you learn how media affects the case how things are different and you just we put our heads together we think our way through things and we always take the what is the most commonsensical and reasonable course of action in every situation with deference to the court that we're in front of. So, when, when, you know, when it's a Romanian issue, we play by the Romanian rules. We do things the Romanian way to the best extent possible because there's no other way to do it. So you're saying that the prosecutors can purge out with no consequence. And is, is that the equivalent of the U.S. having immunity, absolute immunity? Uh, kind of. I mean, prosecutors have great discretion uh, in in Romania, and uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like they're not going to get jammed up for it. That's for sure. Okay, so when you were looking at the charges initially, then how long has the opposition to produce evidence to back the charges up? 
so uh, normally they, they would produce charges um, right away. I think the maximum time that they had in Romania was about six months uh, before uh, they had to make a call whether they could release the brothers or, 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 or not. Uh, there are technicalities. You can supersede. You can bring new charges. Uh, at the end of the day, we know that if the case was strong enough in Romania, those charges would have been right up front, right in the beginning. You would have known right from Jump Street, here are the irreversible, irrefutable allegations that are unimpeachable. They're unassailable. And because of these allegations and these facts, we're gonna we're gonna say this is the justification for the for the for the pretrial incarceration because the case is that strong against them. But what you have is the inverse of that. We have a weak case that resulted in the brothers coming out, um, and which 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 is telling in the, the court in Romania is not going to say this, and I'm I'm going to be respectful of that of that court. But on a common sense level, we all understand that that means that there are serious there is serious problems with the case. You the prosecutors don't take a step back if there's an opportunity to take a step forward, and this is a significant step backwards for them. Uh, which is an indication of progress in, uh, in, in the Romanian case. By and large, uh, what we believe, um, there's a relationship between the Romanian case and what we're doing in the United States. And in, in the United States, where we have the, the, the defamation suit, the tortious interference suit, we have a bunch of claims against one of several of Andrew's accusers, or, and, and Tristan's accusers, for a conspiracy against them. And we were able to uh, and we have been able to show the American public and the American judicial system uh, to present them the truthful facts about the very um, nefarious, uh, illogical, uh, and untrue allegations against the brothers in Romania. And we were able to show a, a very a long history of, of nefarious conduct by the most crucial witnesses against them in the Romanian case. And we believe that uh, the court... And the system over there took notice of what we're doing in the States, because in the States, we're going to blow the case wide open. We're going to shine the light of truth into the darkness. We're going to factually exonerate them before the world. There is no chance in hell that that Romanian case could ever legitimately breathe a second of life after we get the facts out into the public about what really happened in the United States. So like I said earlier then, I believe the conspiracy against them is motivated by financial gain. They get to liquidate him. What do you believe the conspiracy that you've uncovered is motivated by? That's a good question. Um, I think that your theory, there's some credence there for sure. I, I, I believe uh, in my gut, in the deepest part of my gut, in my soul, that this is an effort to silence them, that they, uh, the Tate brothers, uh, in particular, uh, both Andrew and Tristan in their own ways, um, their message of empowerment, whether you agree or disagree, it has motivated uh, legions, thousands, millions of young males in this world to get off of their asses, to put their electronic vices, uh, vices and devices down and to do something more meaningful with their life. And by doing so, um, they resist the, the, the programming, what Andrew likes to call the slave programming, right? And when you have, uh, when you're able to to deprogram or or to take people out of this sort of this 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 wheel where they're just. 
being weakened and weakened and weakened and weakened and you're, and you're strengthening this, this group of males, um, you, you stand a very, you, you stand against the narrative, the programming narrative, you stand against what the corporate globalist agenda is for uh, males between a certain age. That's not a conspiracy theory. When you look at males and when you look at males who they were 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, there's a steady progression toward neutering and weakening and feminizing them to the point where they're not recognizable from my father's generation, right? And to be able to turn that around with a series of tweets, to be able to turn that around with a series of TikTok videos and posts is a very, very powerful thing because the word, the spoken word, when spoken by a powerful man into the word, uh, res resonating uh, on has produced action and they want to shut that down. So how do you shut them down? You discredit them, you throw them in jail and you accuse them of sex crimes. Well, that's very interesting because I remember when he said that first they destroy your reputation, then they throw you in jail and then they kill you. If A, B or C doesn't work, it just progresses. So when I went after some of the biggest names in the world, and I'm not allowed to talk about this on YouTube, but I'll, so I'll, I'll phrase it very carefully. The case of the guy who was found dead in the jail cell in New York. When I went after, we did a lot of coverage on it. We had 60 million views. We were like the tip of the spear at one point. All the leading people, we interviewed survivors, uh, were on the channel. And then what happened with me was I got terminated uh, twice, but the viewers lobbied to get me back. I got hauled into a cop shop and I got prosecuted because they said one of my guests named a child and you can't name a child when a child has had these allegations uh made you know that kind of case where adults attracted to kids kind of case um because i'd published that on my channel i was hauled into the cop shop in the uk threatened with prison and told if i didn't accept a caution and certain conditions so I am now restricted from talking about certain things and if people come on my channel and they have been surviving certain things they have to say that they waive their, on, their anonymity before I'm allowed to talk to them otherwise I go to prison but I guess I'm just lucky that I didn't wake up one day get in my car and it blew up it's 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 true and you're you're taking a personal risk um by the work that you do um, and I, I, I recognize that in you, and I, I appreciate that, and I, I, I honor that. It's unfortunate that this is the kind of thing that you have to deal with for simply covering the truth and for speaking what you perceive to be the truth about a matter and asking reasonable questions about a very dubious set of circumstances and saying, hey, any five-year-old with his head screwed on the right way can see that something is off here. And we just want the answers. And because of that, they want to wreck you and they want to ruin your life, right? So um, this is happening to you. It's happening to them. It's happening to people all over the place. And the problem is people always think, it's well, it's never going to happen to me. It's never going to happen to me. Or oh, it happens to this guy. It happens to that guy. But now it's happening to all of us. At some point, people have to resist. At some point, people have to agree. At some point, people have to wake up and have to take charge of who they give their money to, where they send their subscriptions, and who they vote into office. Every little thing, every penny that you spend in this world matters. 
And if you just continue to live life like none of this matters, it's only going to be a matter of time before they show up at your door. And by then, it may be too late. It's a sad and very scary thing. As George Orwell predicted. So my next question then is about legal discovery. In my case, I had over 100 co-defendants. So there was a warehouse full of... My lawyer said basically the paperwork could fill a warehouse. So he brought a laptop uh, to the legal visitation room. And I was allowed day after day for hours and hours without him there just to go over it and look at all the evidence and you know run some calculations on the alleged transactions. Have you been given all the evidence in Andrew Tate's case? And what have you ascertained from looking at it if, if you have been given the evidence? Sure. So um, I have to be careful uh, about, about this question, right? Because there, there are two cases. There's the case in, in Romania, which is the criminal case against them. And uh, we are working very closely with the Romanian team uh, to examine uh, the evidence uh, in that case in the way that's protected reciprocally by attorney-client privilege in both countries. Um, and when you look at the evidence in the Romanian case uh, against them, uh, if you look at it, it's scant. Uh, it is contradictory. Um, it relies on, uh, on, on dubious, uncredible witnesses. And um, it conflates recent conduct with tweets and statements that were made a decade ago that are not relevant to anything that they're actually being prosecuted with today. Now, it, we also have the American case. And in the American case where Andrew and Tristan are plaintiffs and they are accusing a woman and a group of other people along with that woman of falsely accusing them and conspiring against them to defame them and to take them down, which has resulted uh, in, in them losing millions of dollars in uh, you know months of incarceration needlessly. And in that case, we were able to uh, independently investigate, uh, subpoena, interview witnesses, and acquire information that not only gives them an independent claim or multitude of claims against their wrongdoers in the states, it also exonerates them in part or fully exonerates them in, in, in Romania. And what I mean by that is at the crux of the, the Romanian case, you have this, this accuser. Um, uh, her name is Emma. And she was in Romania for six days. And over the course of six days, she went from showing up happy to quote unquote being human trafficked. But when we dug into the case and when we interviewed witnesses and when we were given documents and when we, when we subpoenaed companies and we were able to look at text messages and WhatsApp chats and all these things, you see somebody who over the course of that six days grabbed another girl, put, put an invention in her head that things were really bad over there and said, we're going to get Academy Awards. We're going to get Oscars, um, a golden statue for 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 our for our, our our part in this here, and we're essentially going to falsely accuse them, and then we're going to fly the coup. That's all in writing, right? The Romanian system has had that forever. That in and of itself should have been enough to justify 
their, their, their immediate release in the beginning of this case and the absolute throwing away of this case. Um, but for, for reasons that we can all pontificate about or speculate about, um, that didn't happen. But in addition to, 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 to that information, we were able to determine that this woman has a long history of targeting uh, fluent men, uh, wealthy men, successful men um, in the United States, in particular in Florida. And then after she is with them for a period of time, she begins the process of blackmailing them and extorting them. And a part of her modus operandi is to weaponize the justice system against um, her victim at the time in order to bring the man to her knees. This is a predator who uses sex as a means to entrap men and then uses the threat of a justice system as a means to blackmail and extort men. And we have had multiple men come to us and say, I am a victim of this woman. This is what she's done to me. This is what she's done to me. One guy actually killed himself, right? There's a whole, there's a body count here of men's lives who's been destroyed by this woman. So when you take that and you add it to what the Romanian case is already about, there's just incontrovertible evidence that this woman can never be trusted. She's never going to be able to sustain cross-examination under oath. Right? She's just not going to be able to do it. So how is it then that the entire Romanian case hinges on this person? It, it, it just, it's just illogical. There, there are political reasons here. There are enemies in high places who want to see these guys jammed up until they can concoct the next bullcrap set of charges against them, whether that's in the UK or somewhere else, in order to jam them up and bleed them dry of every penny that they have, of every part of influence that they have to cancel them across every platform to make them go away in perpetuity forever and ever. But if you know anything about those brothers, that's simply never going to happen. So are the testimonies of those men admissible in the Romanian court? We certainly believe that they are. And uh, we, we, we certainly uh, have, have been in contact with, you know, I don't want to give away strategy, but uh, the answer is yes. We believe that they are. They should be used. It would be wise for them to be used. It would be devastating to the prosecution's case if used. Um, and uh, again, we just don't see how they can recover from this, which is why if I we're sitting in that courtroom, I would dismiss these charges because there has to be some modicum, some shred of credibility here. And that just doesn't exist. Do you think the prosecutor's holding on to other exculpatory evidence? Uh, yes, because they always do. <laughs> yeah, especially in this case, yes. And do you suspect what the nature of that evidence is? I don't want to speculate because I don't want I don't I don't I don't want to jam them up, but um, uh, we have already in this case uncovered, independently uncovered information that um, was not provided when it should have been provided, um, and, and um, you know if 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 they weren't um, if they didn't have people who loved them if they didn't have people who were backing them, if uh, they weren't able to, uh, uh, you know, budget accordingly, they wouldn't be able to, to, to fight in this, in this meaningful capacity, but because they are who they are, they're able to fight um, with, with a fair degree of, 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 of force and, and resources. And, 
And, uh, you know, that, that's saying something. They're making a statement not only for themselves, but for every other man in the world who's ever been falsely accused of this type of thing. It's absolutely ridiculous that a man's life can be destroyed simply because a woman says, you said something inappropriate to me in 1973. You did this, you did that, whatever it is. That's not to take away from the reality of horrible things that men sometimes do. But good men should never have their lives destroyed simply because they've been accused with something. And this case represents, hopefully, an end to that practice once and for all. So what are the consequences of withholding exculpatory evidence in the Romanian justice system? Could that be grounds to get the case kicked out? If if the case um, were to proceed to a certain point and exculpatory evidence was not turned over, that would be grounds to get it kicked out, as it would be in the United States as well. In the United States, we call it Brady information, right? It's Brady evidence. You have a constitutional right to view any evidence that could possibly reasonably be interpreted as exculpatory, especially if it will affect the outcome of your case. Prosecutors routinely bury and hide this stuff with the hopes that it'll never be discovered. But in a world of you know high-tech and, and computers information, it's become increasingly more difficult for them to do that. And uh, we certainly hope that that, that practice comes, comes to, to an end because it's an egregious one. So if it goes to trial, what is a trial like in Romania? I heard there's no jury and it's a three-judge panel. It's very different. Yeah, they'll be they'll be in front of a um, a few judges, and uh, yeah, that's, it's very different when you have the judges being the uh, finders of truth, uh, the finders of fact and law. But look, it can go either way, right? Because you can get a room of people who hate them, you can get a room of people who love them. Judge is supposed to be able to keep the politics um, and the love-hate stuff and the emotions out of the courtroom because they're judges. So it may shape up to actually help them in this case, although they are beloved in Romania. Uh, you ask your common Romanian citizen about the Tate brothers, and, and they absolutely love them. I, I mean, I asked everybody when I was there, and, uh, you know, they are adored, uh, you know, all over the place. But we go back to the January 6th cases. I was talking about Ryan Nichols's case, which is coming up the trial in, in November. And um, we're, we're waiving the jury in that case because we, we, we don't trust the jury. We actually want the judge. So it can go either way. And, and yeah, uh, no, no jury. It, it, it'll be a, a few judges. Do you think it's riskier, though, with the judges because it's so politicized? You know, it depends on the country that you're in. So far, it, it appears that there are some international political influences in the prosecutor's office, but we haven't seen them necessarily um, across the, the judicial spectrum, right? There, there seems to be diversity of opinion and uh, there are some people who are, there appear to be some judges there that, that credibility um, still matters to them. And they're not going to be influenced uh, by, you know, what, what somebody in America or someone else thinks about what should happen to the brothers in terms of the outcome of their, of their fate. You know, when you look at, uh, you know, um, if I was accused of a crime right now and I had to go before uh, judges and I had to choose, do I want to go before judges in uh in Washington, D.C. Or, or Budapest, I'm choosing Budapest, right? Because mm. I 
think I'm going to get a fair shake in Hungary than I would in the United States right now. That's how I feel. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, I, I think and I hope that uh, uh, the Romanian system, especially the judges, will lean more towards objectivity and the, the fair application of law, something that the, the American justice system is uh, apparently unable to do right now. Does the Romanian justice system have the equivalent of a plea bargain? Uh, it's, it's a little bit different. I, I don't, I don't, yes, yes and no. It's a little bit different. I don't, I don't want to give the legal answer on, on this because I don't know it 100%. Um, we have spoken about it, but we have not entertained, uh, the thought of a plea bargain in the Romanian situation. And because I'm not a Romanian lawyer, I have had to learn uh, a lot of the idiosyncrasies that we're talking about and the differences. And the ones that I've been learning about are on point. So I don't have a good answer to that question because we just haven't entertained it. Um, it's just something that they're, they're not going to do. So that, you know, when, when my question came up about that, it was just like, yeah, after that, bro, we're not doing that ever. We're going to sit and we just kept it moving. What are the range of outcomes from best case scenario to worst case scenario for the guys? Best case scenario is is they they walk in Romania. Uh, you know, they, they dismiss this case and they don't even have to go to trial. Next best case scenario is they go to trial and, and, and they win. Worst case scenario is um, they uh, are found guilty and they are um, incarcerated and uh, financially bled and, 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 and drained, you know, that everything that they have that hasn't been millions and millions of dollars has been seized from them already. They've had probably about $15 million worth of items taken from them at this point. And I would imagine that um, if they were convicted, um, that they would go for the rest of it. Uh, and that that would that would be the worst case scenario. Uh, the worst case scenario would be the brothers in jail with no voice and no money, stripped of everything simply because of who they are and what they believe in, despite the fact that they're innocent. Is there a face saving scenario whereby charges could be reduced? Romania could get a conviction, keep assets, but the guys could get back time, something like that. Yes. Yes, there is. I don't want to speak too much on that, but yeah, there, there, there is. And one of the things I can say that the problem is, is that this is the biggest case in Romanian criminal jurisprudence history in, in, in modern era. Like the Romanian government hasn't spent more money in a prosecution ever. Uh, and that's, that's saying something. So the idea that they're going to, you know, exit the situation here with, with nothing um, absent a trial is, is, is kind of hard to conceive, right? So how do you reconcile that with two guys who are innocent? Well, we have this woman and this group of people who essentially... Thank you for watching the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. Don't you hate it when you've got subscriptions out there that you don't know about? Taking all that cash out of your account. I recently found out I had four Amazon Prime subscriptions. Now I've got it down to one. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Most people think they're spending $80 on their subscriptions, when in reality the number is closer to $200. When you're signed up for so many things like streaming services you used to watch one show or free trials for delivery you don't use, it's so easy to lose track 
of what you're paying for. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com, S-H-A-U-N, rocketmoney.com slash Sean. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Link is in the description box on YouTube. Back to the podcast. Uh, used the uh, Romanian system as a weapon to capture these men and to silence these men and to hurt these men. So what we're proffering to them and what we hope they can see at this point is that they too are actually victims of this woman's misconduct. If they're looking for a conviction, they should go after her. If they're looking for something to hang their hat on, they should go after the bad actors who inappropriately use that system and all this money to try to put away two men. That's one scenario. It's a hopeful one, but it's a real one. There are a few others that I don't want to get into because of ongoing uh, processes of thinking and negotiations. But um, uh, we're hopeful in the end that uh, we'll get a full exoneration because that's what they deserve. Yeah, I wrote a book called Unmaking a Murderer about Brendan Dassey and Stephen Avery looking at the 10 ways prosecutors and detectives frame innocent people. And a common theme is that when they're committed, even when evidence comes to light, they are committed. And there's been incidences of where people on death row, they've left them to get executed rather than ever this evidence come to light and their careers unwind and then they have to explain then to the victim's family members they got the wrong guy and all this stuff. So do you think that because they are committed, there's going to have to be some kind of middle ground uh, plea bargaining situation? I certainly hope not. I mean, the the, the problem with overcommitting and tunnel vision that you're talking about is is, is very real. Uh, I think it comes from pride. It comes from a place where if, if, if we admit that we're wrong on this, then other people are going to say that we were wrong on that and the whole system unravels. I get that to some extent. But, you know, uh, to be able to put your pride aside and, and, and talk about credibility and, and what does true justice mean and to say, hey, look, we really thought that you were guilty. But at the end of the day, we're finding out that, you're, that, that, that guilt actually rests with someone else. It's just not a blame shifting scenario. It is like saying, hey, we, we are innocent. Why would you ever want to put innocent people in jail? Here are the wrongdoers. So when you look at the other exoneration cases, lots of times the DNA evidence will, port, will point to the actual wrongdoer. You know, while person X is being exonerated, person Z is also simultaneously being accused or being found out. We have that situation here. We have a situation where these people, these, the brothers, the Tates have been falsely accused. And we have a wrongdoer to which we can point and say, this person is actually in this group of people actually guilty of crimes. We hope that that will count for something. We're not, I'm not saying that every word that Andrew and Tristan Tate have ever said in their lives is great or, or awesome or, or, or not problematic. Well, what I am saying is that the evidence against them and the words that are against them currently in the body of evidence does not rise to the level of, 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 of a conviction in, in, in this case. And if you were going to impeach me for every bad thing I've ever said in my life, or maybe you'd have a case against me. God knows what I've said when I was a teenager and 20 and 30 years ago, but who the hell cares? And again, we have to separate who these men were 15 years ago 
10 years ago and even five years ago and look at them for who they are today because they have grown, they have metamorphosized, they had changed. Um, and they are, they are these, these tremendous men today. Um, and, and, that, and that really says something. So set aside the past, focused on what is in front of you, the evidence presented. And when you look at that, there's just no way that they can be convicted in a court of law. There's just no way. The evidence is not there. So are you saying then there's not just a component of them being victims of their own flexing, there's also a component of them being victims of their own words? Yes. I mean, for, you know, for God's sakes, dur during the uh, the President Trump years and, 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 and during the last election, he was banned from Twitter for mean tweets. I mean, this is the world that we live in right now. So if Trump was banned for mean tweets, you know, what's the establishment going to try to do to Andrew Tate for what he says, right? They're criminalizing free speech. They're criminalizing uh, opposition, dissension, uh, uh, opposing points of views, right? Controversial points of views. Let Andrew Tate say what he has to say and give a counterpoint and judge him by the merits, but don't try to take away his freedom for that. Is that what's happening? 100%. That is what's happening right now. He is being penalized for some of the things that he said in the past. But again, those words do not arise to the level of criminal acts. Let's look at the words he's saying in the present then, because my lawyer, he said to me right away, don't speak to the media. If you get pick up the phone in the day room and call your mom, it's recorded. Don't speak to the inmates. They will snitch you out to try and get the sentences reduced. It seems to me that Andrew Tate has done the complete opposite and he's gone on a rampage doing all these interviews. And that would have been my lawyer's worst nightmare. How do you reconcile that? Because court is theatre. Every month I went to court for 26 months fighting my case. Prosecutor said I was the Antichrist. My lawyer said I was a child, protege, stock market guy gone wild. Neither were true. The truth was somewhere in between, but I couldn't say a thing. And the the, the theatre production company that puts on the best theatre show wins. My lawyer, my lawyer got uh, Ray Crone, the Snaggletooth killer, off death row. They gave him $5,000 to represent himself. And they paid an expert witness 50000 to say a bite ma matched on the victim's leg um, with his teeth when they knew it didn't. And they put on the best show and they won. But don't you think Andrew Tate, because these prosecutors are clickbaiters from hell and they will take tiny little bits of what you're saying in the present and put that in a, in a, a twisted way to make you sound guilty. So don't you think it's problematic that he's been doing these interviews? No, I don't think it's problematic. I think you got to fight fire with fire. And when the truth is on your side, if you just rain the truth down, just over and over and over and over again at some point it has to have some effect there is a difference between a man who is partially guilty and partially innocent right and between him and a man who is innocent as innocent can be and says man by god i am innocent i am not going to sit by here and let these people wrongfully accuse me and be silenced when i have a platform to actually tell the world how i feel so, I, you know, did we have these conversations? Sure. But Andrew is brilliant. Tristan is brilliant. I, I don't think people understand how smart uh, these two guys actually are. I, I mean, Andrew's like a world champion kickboxer, a world champion chess player. The guy is very, very smart. 
and so is Tristan. They're well read. They're well thought out. They're, they're calculated. They thought through even their messaging to the population of people of men. They saw a need. They saw something, a need, and they stepped in and they filled the void. They stepped into the gap. And did they make money off of it? Sure, they made money off of it. Have they helped people? Sure, they've helped people. Have they pissed a lot of people off along the way? Sure, they pissed a lot of people off along the way. So what? So when you have somebody who's this capable, who's this much of a fighter, who's this intelligent, plus you have the truth on your side, plus you have the ability to bring in somebody like Tucker Carlson from the United States, who's, leg who's legitimate, who's mainstream, who people respect, who's going to, who's, who's a fair journalist, who's going to ask questions and give Andrew a, an ability to say things and to, and then present uh, the full interview, unlike the BBC, to the public, alive and uncut, and let the people judge it on its merits. That is an opportunity. That is a set of circumstances that you have to act on. You have to act on that opportunity. You can't put your head down as an attorney or a client on your pillow at night and say, at night and say oh, man, I, I let that one go by me. No, you have to grab a hold of that. And we used it. And that Tucker Carlson interview, um, it just recently got broke by Trump. His interview with Trump, but it got 100 million views in, in, in like a week. There was 100 million, millions and millions of my mother and father, my baby boomer mother and father sitting at home in their chairs in Tennessee, looking up at the TV, watching Tucker and Andrew. I'm in the back looking at them going, why does my mom and dad watching Andrew and Tucker talk right now? We put this together, but all these people in the world are watching them and they're being introduced to Andrew for the first time in the most unbiased way possible. And he's able to explain to the world, this is who I am. This is what I'm talking about. Traditional Western values. A man is a man, is a woman is a woman. And this is what I believe. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. But I'm not going to change my opinion. I'm a principled person, so on and so forth. My, my, my dad turned to, to my mom and he goes, I don't understand what the hell is people's problem with this guy. And when I saw that happen, I knew that we had something. And I knew that we got to keep doing that again and again and again and again because people have an innate ability to recognize bullshit and to recognize truth. Mm -hmm. And when Andrew talks, people recognize truth. Yeah, definitely. I've watched a lot of their stuff, the valuetainment ones they did recently. And Andrew and Tristan are very eloquent and powerful speakers. And the emotion, you know, when they're protesting their innocence, it definitely resonates. But... I've seen situations whereby people, when they have ongoing cases, protest their innocence and are innocent in the face of a corrupt justice system, if they do get convicted of something, then the prosecutor turns around and said, well, during you know the case, this person's been shouting his innocence from the rooftops. He is not remorseful, Your Honor, so we need to super aggravate the sentence. And I've seen that happen. Is there a risk of that, or do you think that the risk of that is outweighed by the benefits of what they're doing? The risk is outweighed by the benefits here. Is the risk there? Sure. But the facts are so strongly on their side that no reasonable person in Andrew's shoes, you know, when looking at, 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 the, at, at the facts, could, could, could ever disagree with what he's saying. And look, I encourage you, all your viewers especially the tape detractors. If you hate the Tates, fine, hate them all you want. But I will send you the motion. It's available online. Read the motion that we filed in the American court. 
It's, it's lengthy. It's like 60 pages long. Just get through the statement of facts. If you can get through the statement of facts and if you can see the progression of what actually happened to them, right, and the evidence that we presented there with the knowledge that the entire Romanian case hinges on essentially the same fact pattern that, that started in the United States of America, if you, after reading that and taking in that information, then can, can still conclude that these guys are guilty, then fine, that's your opinion. But I promise you, a substantial amount of your viewers upon reading this and afterwards are going to convert. They're going, you don't have to become like Andrew Tate supporters, mm -hmm. but you're going to understand that he's not guilty of the crimes that he's being charged. And then you're going to have to make a moral judgment within yourself. right? Do I want this person to go to jail simply because I don't agree with what he's saying? Or am I astute enough, objective enough, reasonable enough to say, you know what? I think what he says sucks but I don't want him to go to jail for it. That's all we're asking for here. You don't have to love him, but you should respect his right to exist in this world as a free person to the extent that he shouldn't go to jail simply because you disagree with him. And neither should you, neither should anybody. And that's all we're asking for here, reasonableness. So I'm assuming then they're going to use what he said about the lover boy method as evidence against him. How do you counter that? Well, look, again, it has to fit into the context of what uh, the time frame that under which he's been charged. Right. There's a there's a time frame, 2021 ish going forward. Right. And then, and then going and, and then going backwards. Anything that's, that's beyond the time frame is, is not relevant. If there's something that's in the time frame, then we have to examine it and make sure that it's number one in its proper context. Number two, it actually came from him. Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash Aura dot com. Aura is A-U-R-A forward slash Sean Atwood, S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T Wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info. Also linked in my description box on this YouTube version or scan the QR code on the screen. Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. And number three, did he actually act on it, right? And the answer is going to be he didn't act on any of that stuff. Does Andrew Tate say wild stuff? Has Andrew Tate said wild stuff? Hell yeah. You know what? So have I. And so have half of the people I know, half the guys I know in this world. It's just you, you say things sometimes, right? Does that mean that it's criminal? No. If you were to look at the chat conversations between the CEOs of Target or McDonald's or Chase Bank or, or Citibank or whoever they are, and they were talking about maximizing profits and cutting down on manpower and making people work more in this sector and shaving from here and over there, you'd be like, these people are talking about corporate slavery. They should all go to jail. But because they're talking about it, it's okay. But if you see it in any other context, or especially if it's coming out of uh, Andrew Tate's mouth, all of a sudden it's criminal. People have to realize that 
this kind of stuff, this kind of talk happens every day. And if it doesn't if it doesn't arise to the level of criminality, you shouldn't go to jail for it. You can say it's morally reprehensible. You can say, I don't agree with it. What the hell is he talking about? This is outrageous. Agree, disagree. All you want, start a podcast, go on the show, write a book, do whatever you want. But the idea that somebody should go to jail for saying some, some things or some wild stuff is still not good enough. It's not acceptable in a free and open society to incarcerate somebody because they say something that you simply disagree with. So what is the legal status now? Are they in limbo? There's no scheduled trial or hearings imminent? Uh, in, in Romania, there's there's a tentative trial date, I believe in October, around October 8th, something like that. I probably think that's going to move based on, on what's, what's been going on. And the rest of it seems to be uh, in, in limbo. Um, this is my fear, right? My fear is this. My fear is that we beat the case in Romania because the case is beatable. But they use it as a dry run to see how they're going to be defended, to see who's going to come to their defense. And then they come up with a case in the UK um, or they come up with a case someplace else and they, and they stack all these accusers against them and they do all this stuff in order to, uh, to prosecute them again, right? The United States... In England, you got the concept of double jeopardy. You can't be charged for the same thing twice. But in this globalist sort of world that we live in, in this interconnected world that we live in, you can conceivably get charged and tried for the same thing in three different countries until somebody checkmates you on the checkboard on the chessboard. And I and I really believe that that's what we're up against. I think we win in Romania. I think we win in the United States. I think someplace somewhere else. Some disgruntled group, people in government, someplace, go after them again, and, and, and until they can get their pound of flesh. I hope that that doesn't happen. I do not want that to happen because these guys are innocent. But because of what they're saying is so politically politically charged and empowering to the men that the young boys that they're trying to capture, I really believe that you know that can and, and may indeed happen. So is the judge that changed the location of detention to house arrest and then off house arrest, would that judge be on the panel if there was a trial? I don't believe so. Uh, it's a good question. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a little, I'm a little still fuzzy on the way that that works. But the way I see things so far, basically in Romania, once a judge touches it at one level, they don't, get, they don't touch it again at the next level. Um, so I believe it would have to be... Uh, uh, in other words, if there are a pool of judges, each judge that touches the case on the way up um, would subsequently be disqualified from, from touching it at the next level. I could be wrong at that. I'm not an expert in Romanian jurisprudence, but my understanding of the situation is that the judge would be different. So in some cases like this, they snatch everyone up and rely on people going over to the other side, snitching, cooperating. Have they been leaning on the females in this case? Oh, man. That's a great question. Um, they have leaned on females in this case. Other than uh, Emma and, 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 the, and the other girl that she conspired with, um, all the other girls have said there's no problems with these guys. A few, a few of the girls in particular um, have said, not only is there no problem with these guys, we love them, we adore them, they've made videos, they've gone online and said, hey, 
But the government has said over there, at least in the beginning, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, sweetheart. You've been brainwashed or you've been lover boyed or you've been, you know, somehow hoodwinked. And, you know, we know better. Um, you know, this is really not how you feel. So we're not going to accept your statements that nothing happened. We're going to take this very paternalistic approach and say we know what's really happened. And, uh, you know, we're going to count you as victims anyway. And these girls will go, what the hell? We're not victims. I mean, how much more demeaning can you be to a female, to a woman to say, I'm sorry, sweetheart, you don't have the ability to think for yourself. This man has so much power over you that you must not know what's going on. These are educated women. One of them has a degree in psychology. She actually uses it and say, I, has, I have a degree in psychology. There's no problem with Andrew or Tristan. These are great men. Everybody who works here is happy. And there was no problem until these other until this other woman showed up. Like it's obvious about what's going on here. So they leaned on him, but they didn't get the result they wanted. So the female co-defendants have been offered deals. No, these are so the female the female co-defendants are different. I'm talking about female witnesses, right? Yeah, that's my next that's my next oh, question. Oh, have sorry. they been offered deals, the female co-defendants? Not to my knowledge. Not they may not to my knowledge. Because aren't they usually relying on the domino theory that you know if they can get the other codies to to roll over? Because I heard Tristan say they, they they'd offered something to him. I think it was on the valuetainment interview. Yeah, you know the thing is is that when you're innocent. Um, and everybody knows that you're innocent. People aren't necessarily inclined unless you're innocent guys take deals all the time. So I should clarify what I'm saying. Right. But when you have such a strong chance of winning, it's just like, am I, is, is this, are we even going to, you know, sure. They made me an offer. Am I going to take it? No, we're going to go in there. We're going to beat you. Um, most prosecutors are used to people just rolling over and taking pleas. They're not used to somebody actually going in there and actually fighting um, and saying, hey, I didn't do anything wrong here, and I have, I have the ability and the resources to prove it. So this, this is different uh, in, in, in many respects, especially regarding the fact that, you know, they didn't have – it's not like this is like a kingpin drug operation where they got a guy selling on the ground who's going to get the guy at the top, right? This is not one of those situations. Nobody got picked up with a – what, what, you know, what, what bundles of anything. Um, everybody's innocent here. Um, everybody's got the same story. Uh, there, there's no need to lie. There's no story to change. The story has been consistent across the board because it's the truth. And um, how they convict in light of that is, is beyond me. So what are the spirits of the guys like now? Because I know when Andrew got off house arrest, he had that look I'm familiar with, the shock of the newly incarcerated. Has he, has he bounced back from that? Yeah, Andrew, Andrew has, has, he's, he's a strong, he's a strong guy. And um, over these, these past months, um, he's become, uh, he's deepened in his, in his, his faith, his devotion to God. Um, he has uh, become uh, more introspective. Um, he's thought a lot about some of the things that he said in the past and, and, and looked to distance himself to some extent. He says, look, I don't make apologies about what I said 10 years ago. That's who I was 10 years ago, but uh, it's not who I am anymore. Like, I'm not going to say um, all of those things. Some of the things I said hold true, like men have a right to self-determine. Men are great. Men are crucial. Men are responsible for a lot of the good things in this world. I'm never going to detract on that. 
but maybe some of my other comments, uh, you know, they were a little bit unsavory at the time, but I was a little bit more grizzled and closer to the street than I am now. I had a hundred followers or a thousand followers back then. Now I have several million. I conduct myself differently, right? So um, I admire um, his tenacity. I admire his strength and his, his will to persevere as I do Tristan's. Um, I've had multiple conversations with Tristan as well. Um, uh, him and I share a common faith, right? We're both Christians and, and uh, you know, we talk about that a lot and, and we've prayed together and we've talked about the future. These guys also do a tremendous amount of charity work. People don't realize how much money they've given to charity. They have fed entire villages, war-torn countries, mm. orphanages, people, education. They're always giving. They're always giving because they come from nothing and they have not forgotten where they come from. They understand what it's like to live in this world in very hard, difficult circumstances and not have the financial resources that you need to do whatever it is. They are always giving. I mean, I cannot oversell that enough. It's, it's the truth. They're very generous um, with whatever they have and um, they're very helpful to lots of people and they do not broadcast it. They just do it. If anybody ever actually digs into their charitable efforts, they're going to be shocked at the level of contribution and philanthropy that they've done throughout the world. Because I was, I had no clue um, until I was introduced to it. And I spoke to some of the people around them and I began to ask questions. And I said, why the hell you didn't tell me this? I'd want to know. Well, I just don't talk about it, bro. And well, tell me, I, I want to know. And when I learned, I was like, oh, my God, you guys have done a tremendous amount of good. The world needs to know about this. And I'm going to help you uh, get that truth out there. So there's no worse psychological torture than not knowing what's going to happen to you in your future. You know, I was in Sheriff Joe's jail and the conditions, the gangs, the cockroaches, the dead rats in the food didn't matter. I was facing 200 years. And when I got nine and a half, it was the happiest day of my life because I could see when I was going to get out. So... Are they still in that mindset, you know, where the uncertainty is gnawing away at them? I think that's a, a huge thing for the unsentenced prisoner. And are they looking at this situation as a way of maturing? Trials and tribulations make us stronger and, you know, we grow. Uh, are they able to take that anxious energy and change it to their advantage? It's a, it's a great question. And... They have, uh, look, living with this level of uncertainty is, is gut-wrenching. It is, uh, especially for two men who are alpha male, absolutely in control of their destiny, you know, wielding incredible power and force in their personal lives and globally across the world. These guys are, are, are you know, they, they're, they're in control. And when you have that control taken away from you and you have the possibility of, of your freedom being taken away as well, and you don't have the absolute authority, it's not like, okay, Andrew or Tristan, um, your fate is going to be determined by your next fight. Go in there and train your butts off and then go in there and fight to the death. They would prefer that than uh, their fate being in my hands and in the hands of other people, Right. But it's not. Their, their, their fate is to some degree in my hands and in other, other lawyers' hands and, and in you know, the, the prosecution's hands and the respective judges' hands. And at some point, you have to learn how to detach from that so you can exist in your day-to-day -day life 
um, on, with with some normal degree of of, of 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 humanity and living. So did they have to have to to, to did they have to acquire a new set of skills in order to find happiness and peace and all the things that they had in their other in their, in their normal life before these things happened? Did they have to relearn how to do that now and how to apply it? Yes. Did that did that cause them to expand instead of contract as people? Yes. Have they do they have this new level of character and this new level of understanding and all these things? Yes, they do. But um, uh, it, it's grueling. It's unforgiving. It's not easy. Um, but again, I admire, I admire their steadfastness. I admire their consistency. They're mentally tough. They're spiritually strong. They're devoted to winning. They're devoted to God. They're devoted to truth. And when you're, approaches fundamentalists with regard to those things in situations like this, it'll give you an incredible amount of strength. And um, that's what I had to do in order to succeed. And I, I certainly recognize it in them. Is there anything I've left out here, Joe? This has been fascinating to get into the nitty gritty. You know, left out, you know, I, I think that um, one of the things that, that we can just maybe to close out on to touch on again is to, is to say to, to to the people out there, especially the Tate detractors, look, I get why you may not like some of the things that they say, especially in the world that we live in today. But at the end of the day, we all have a right to self-determine our own destiny. We have a right to free speech and to say things um, that other people disagree with. It's okay for you to be upset it's okay for you to disagree, but it's not okay for you to just blanketly sign on to somebody's incarceration because you don't like what they're saying. It's a, it's, 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 it's an evil. It's a greater evil than anything that is can possibly be perceived to come out of any, any of these guys' mouths for you to sign on to say, you know what, because I disagree and loathe them so much that I'd rather see them silenced and put in jail forever than have to endure another tweet by Andrew Tate or Tristan Tate. That's badness. You can't do that. You can't sign on to that kind of thing. So I would encourage people to, to, to read my motion and to make an objective determination on the facts and to say, if this case in Romania truly hinges on this girl and her co-conspirators' uh, allegations, then there's just no way that it can be true. I, I, I guarantee you, the most, if you're a reasonable person and you read this motion, you're not going to be able to conclude that Andrew and Tristan Tate are guilty. And if they're not guilty, then they deserve to go free. And if they deserve to go free, then let them go free. And, um, and, and that's... Really what I have to say about it, Sean. Well, after speaking to you, it sounds like they've been railroaded. It's definitely a super weak case. You know, I'm inundated with young men who say they've been inspired by them. And um, we were the first prison channel. We started in 2007. They're all urging me to try and get Andrew's uh, Romanian prison stories. I'd love to go out there and, and speak to him. Um, but yeah, wish you all the best, man. You're on such a fantastic mission. It's great what you're doing, your passion, you know, coming from what happens to your brother. I'm sure that opened many people's hearts here. And if they are against Andrew Tate, I think you might have changed some people's minds. So for people watching this then, how can those people support you and follow you on socials, etc.? 
So uh, I am at McBride Law NYC. It's M C B R I D E Law NYC across all social media platforms. If somebody is inclined to give to the January 6th work that I'm doing or our firm's full, a global mission for the fight to protect the freedom of speech um, in the United States of America and abroad across the world, they can uh, go to my webpage. It's McBrideLawNYC.com. There's a transition page there right now, but they can find all the relevant information. Um, if you're inclined to, uh, to support um, Andrew, interest in Tate in our fight uh, for their freedom and their fight for the preservation of their represent uh, of, of their reputations. I encourage you to look them up online to contribute um, to to their fund as well. You, you can find it um, on on their website and to speak out. Speak out if you disagree about what's going on. Speak out in in the public workplace. Speak out on social media. Don't be afraid to be criticized. Don't be afraid to lose friends. If somebody wants to cut you off because you like Andrew Tate or you support whatever candidate it is in office, they were never your friends to begin with. And if you have an opportunity to force a meaningful dialogue at home with your family members or your friends over these discussions, then do it. Again, that's what this is about. This is about freedom of thought. This is about the free exchange of ideas. And, you know, reasonable people can disagree all the time without wanting to put the other person in jail. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're free thinking Westerners. We're not, uh, Bolsheviks. Um, so I would encourage you to, to remember that. And that's when we will learn the most when we hear from people we don't agree with. If we're all singing from the same hymn sheet, we're never going to learn anything. Um, so don't shoot the interviewer. Remember in the comments, please. All of Joe's links will be in the description box below this video. If you're watching it on YouTube. So please go down and support his important work and uh, i can't wait to see all the comments on this one it, it usually goes crazy when it's anything to do with say but most most importantly joe huge thank you for spending so much time with us today and we salute your work and all the best with what you're doing my friend an absolute pleasure thank you so sean and salute back to you for the work that you're doing as well god bless cheers from london